Welcome back, listeners. This is your host, Mixbell Morrigan. Before I start my next deep dive series, which is going to be into the Purge franchise, I recorded a special bonus episode where I got to sit down and interview Jeremiah Kipp, who is the director of the recent film, which has come out to very high praise and acclaim, Slapface. So sit back and enjoy and listen to my discussion with this fantastic director about the film, the process, and just horror movies in general. Hi there, and welcome back to Fishnets and Philosophy. This is your host, Mix Bell Morrigan, and this week I have a bonus special episode as I'm joined by the director, Jeremiah Kipp, who directed the recent film Slapface, which has been received to great reception in the horror community and is also on Shudder at the moment. So before we start into discussing your film, I just want to kind of get to know a little bit about yourself. So what kind of got you into being a director into film? Well, uh, I grew up in uh, Rhode Island, which is in the northeast part of the United States, and it was very... uh, very, very rural. So it was, I grew up deep in the woods with my grandparents. And uh, my grandparents were extremely lenient about what they allowed me to watch when I was growing up. So I, I watched a lot of horror films and, and I didn't make any distinction between them and Grimm's fairy tales or children's books. Like The Sorcerer's Apprentice, it felt like there was no real difference between that and you know stories about monsters going out of control like Hansel and Gretel getting lost in the woods felt the same to me as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where they all go to this house that's in the middle of Texas. Uh, So those stories always delighted me and were a great source of uh, comfort for me. I didn't feel frightened by them. I felt engaged by them. I felt like they unlocked parts of my imagination. Uh, And they made me feel less alone. You know, I felt like I was a strange and lonely kid and the monsters were strange and misunderstood and therefore I loved them and I wanted to engage with monsters. So I always had enormous sympathy for the creatures in films, not not just in movies like David Cronenberg's The Fly, where it's overtly, you feel enormous sympathy for Seth Brundle as he's turning into a giant fly. But I also felt enormous sympathy for Leatherface, like, (laughs) because because Leatherface is like, who are all these people that are coming inside of my house and I can't seem to satisfy my family and all this sort of stuff. Uh, And that went as far back as you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman, all, all these mm. misunderstood, uh, fabulous creatures that I loved. Yeah, no, um, I, it, that, that resonates so much. And I think that is definitely across the board, something that a lot of horror fans can relate to is rather actually finding more of a kinship with the monsters and like the creatures rather than the actual heroes of the film. Like, and I think particularly queer horror fans definitely have yeah. a lot of, relate relatively to the monsters and creatures because like the outcasts and outsiders but I love actually what you kind of said that um I think even when we'll discuss it further but even in your film Slapface you can tell that there is that you know the creatures a lot of time can be misunderstood they're not just they're not just evil and I think you can feel that with the with the hag in Slapface mm-hmm. as well you can feel that touch on it so we'll discuss that later but no that's really interesting you can it's great that you're actually in directing horror films, something that you had such a, you know, 
relation to and enjoyed growing up. So it's great that you're able to do what you loved. And so that's really enjoyable to know a bit about what kind of got you into directing horror and why horror. And I'm just wondering, as like a director, how has it been the last kind of basically two and a bit years in our current world climate where everything went haywire? So I'm just wondering, like getting films made, how much did that change for people like yourself who are directors? So strange, such a strange time in all of our collective lives. Mm. Um, and I think we have yet to unpack, unpack the collective uh, trauma and feelings of isolation and, uh, and fear that we've been going through or what we've learned about ourselves. I think we're still learning. Mm -hmm. uh, I was fortunate in that Slapface was filmed, was photographed before the pandemic. Like we, we did our final pickup shots literally days before New York City shut down. Uh, New York is where I currently reside. Mm. Um, and during the pandemic, it was very healthy for the producers and for the editor and I to have something to do. So it wasn't right. just lockdown, you know, watching movies and connecting with your friends and loved ones on Zoom. Uh, it was also like, you know, like it, it was enormously healthy to stay engaged in a creative process with, nice. uh, with the producers and the editor in making something. It gave, you know, you had something to look forward to every yeah. week. But it was like uh, putting the pieces together for this movie. Now, the making of movies has been enormously affected by the pandemic. Uh, you know, you, you show up on set and everybody's wearing these masks and you're continually getting tested. Mm. It was especially weird right when we got going again. Like the first movie that I did was probably, uh, it was, you know, towards the end of the first year of the pandemic. And uh, it was a very, it was really strange because there was a very, very small crew you know, like the sound person who normally just does sound was moving stands and right. lights. Uh, the, you know, everybody was doing multiple departments. And then the actors in that film were, like one of them was Melissa Leo, who had won an Academy Award for The Fighter. Mm. And, you know, Michael O'Keefe has been making movies since Caddyshack. So, you know, like there were these extremely experienced actors who wanted to work because of the pandemic. Mm. But I think there was a really weird imbalance for the actors and the crew because these actors who are extremely famous are doing this movie with a very, very small production. And I think everybody felt the strangeness of that, not just the social distancing mm. and all the, the strange ways of approaching a movie. Um, I think we'll be, you know, like, I, I would hope that horror filmmakers will tackle the subject indirectly because I'd like to see, I'd like to see it used metaphorically. I don't know if I want to watch a film about you know, yeah. a pandemic right now. Like I've actually never seen the Steven Soderbergh movie this that, uh, with Gwyneth Paltrow that is set during a pandemic. And, and when the pandemic started, some friends of mine were, oh, you should watch that. They'll tell you what to do. I was like, I am living that movie right now. The reason I like horror films is because we don't turn into giant flies, you know? Like, yeah. we, that's a metaphor for when you know, like a, when a loved one is dying of a debilitating disease, mm -hmm. you know, that is extremely hard to watch, but it is easier to watch someone turning into a giant fly. So if we're to tackle yep. our feelings of isolation and fear, I would love it if people find new ways of telling that story, not just through plague, 
you know, yeah. I, I think I'm a little plagued out at the moment. I'd rather watch. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can, I can feel you there. Podcast, you guys are going through the Saw series, you know, which mm. is like really, I think that's really wonderful because the Saw series at first was about these interesting traps. Like my favorite part of Saw 1 is the, the bear trap sequence, which is so mm. incredible and Charlie Smith is so great. Performance is amazing. But as the series went on, like I think the joy of that series was not just the traps, but the intricate mythology yeah it is as dense as you know any cinematic universe you know it's like you've got the marvel cinematic universe and the dc universe for the star <laughs> you've got so complex and rich and like i mean i think that's something i'd rather you know like the, the joy of watching the saw series right now you know mm -hmm. it's like that has nothing to do with the horrors that we're undergoing right now which i think it makes it really fun to yeah. engage with that series as you guys are doing right now yeah, no, definitely. And I think if any genre has the ability to kind of really do interesting things to ana analyze and kind of discuss what the world has gone through, it will be horror. So it's going to be exciting to see where it goes. And I think that's a perfect point to kind of lean into actually discussing Slap Face because Slap Face is a film that's not about plague. So it was really enjoyable to be able to kind of get into something new and different to what we're, it was like real good really good for escapism mm. and like i want to just know like because for people who haven't seen it watch it and then come back and listen to this, this discussion but essentially the main crux of the film is that it really is dealing with like themes of bullying and also in some ways also isolation like social isolation yeah. and i want to know like um because watching it it felt like to me like it was a very personal film it felt very yeah. personal so i want to know like from you like um like how much of you was in that film like how much of yourself was a guiding force for the story of like lucas or his character oh it was it was deeply personal um you know i don't i don't know if i would call the film autobiographical because i didn't become friends <laughs> with a giant monster and uh and I, I didn't grow, I was the oldest of all of my siblings by, mm. by 12 years. So I didn't have, it wasn't like an, I don't have an older brother story, yeah. but, um, but, you know, I grew up deep in the woods in a very complex relationship with my grandparents, you know, and, uh, mm. you know, and I drew less from my own, from some of my own experience as much yeah. as I did, because I, I needed a distancing device to tell my story too. Definitely. And the way that I did that was through, uh, conversations with my grandfather, who was indeed my father figure growing up. The name of the older brother is based on the name of my grandfather. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, the relationship between, you know, Tom and Lucas, the older brother and younger brother in that story, mm -hmm. is, is more based on the relationship between my grandfather and his father, because they would place that face right. okay. when my grandfather was growing up and when my grandfather would misbehave or act up, as he often did. I mean, he grew up in a very lower income part of town and you know one of the things about poverty is you're constantly looking for things to do and sometimes that involves breaking the law like uh, mm. uh you know one of the things that was that was true to the, my experience was like I, one of my favorite pastimes was sneaking into old buildings and you were constantly breaking into old asylums and old ymcas and you know and so on and it was really amazing making slap face i felt like i'd made it as a filmmaker because the uh the community and the city council gave us the keys to these abandoned places and wow. said, you know, like, scout these locations. So not breaking into buildings <laughs> to achieve your horror film was a real career goal for me. Not just, I cannot confirm or deny that I've done that in my past. <laughs> uh, 
Clap Face <laughs> is my is feature number six for me. And I can't yeah, yeah. confirm or deny that for feature number one, two, three, and four, <laughs> that I didn't uh, break into buildings to achieve the effect of the haunted house. But that was something I did. And like my grandfather and I would go do that together. But the slap face game was something they did. And the childhood bullying, specifically right. the uh, the three girls who would chase mm. Lucas through the woods and throw rocks at him. Uh, and then the one that would circle back around and say, you're my secret lover and don't tell anyone yeah. you're in trouble. You know, that all happened to my grandfather. And he was very nice. open. He was extremely open in telling his story, you know, and he was extremely open in trying to explain where he came from and some of his sources of trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, when... And I kind of stumbled upon it being a personal story by accident, almost. <laughs> I was, I, my, my beloved... Now, my favorite novel is Mary mm. Shelley's Frankenstein, and there's a powerful mm -hmm. section in the middle of the book where the monster is outside of a farmhouse imagining the lives of the people inside and trying to help them and trying to create a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And I started to wonder, like, well, who are those people inside if I wanted to tell my version of Frankenstein? And gradually it took on all these right. aspects of <clears throat> my childhood and my grandfather's childhood. And then the monster moved from being Frankenstein's creature who is a wonderful magical creation of like a, a reanimated human who is trying to rediscover humanity mm -hmm. uh and uh and it and it took on the stuff that fascinated me as a child i'd mentioned that they'd made the distinction between grim's fairy tales and leatherface yeah so i thought let's lean into the monster of our story being a witch but let's keep the dysmorphia of the monster being like 10 feet tall and really long, yeah. and put the, but put the witch face on top. And suddenly you have this strange hulking beast-like creature with the Wicked Witch's uh, face atop yeah. it, which was a very unique and strange creation uh, that that really delighted me. I was like, yes, that's, that's the friend. <laughs> that's the friend that we would misunderstand who loves us and doesn't know quite how to express their love for us. And, you know, and, and yeah. in the way that child abuse is often, I mean, it's like more complex than many stories painted where it's like, you know, I just remember not liking it in films where like the solution to child abuse would be Arnold Schwarzenegger grabbing the abusive father and saying, I'll punch you out, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you're, 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 don't mess with me. Like, you know, yeah. it's like solving violence through violence. When in actuality, the people who are often abused love their abuser uh, mm -hmm. and have like deeply complex relationships with their abuser, where it's like uh, the abuser doesn't even think of themselves as an abuser. They think of themselves as a protector. Yeah. They think of themselves as like a nurturer saying like, I'm not trying to beat you. Like Tom says in the film, I am not abusing my kid brother. He's looking yeah. at it as a way to like uh, through a sense of shock uh wake lucas up and wake each other up and you know if i if, if i'm not just abusing you because you're hitting me back which of course is sadistic yeah. and uh <laughs> and masochistic all at once i mean it's really you know if you look at it objectively as the character anna does you're like what the, what the actual fuck <laughs> is that like what is you know what is that behavior it's like oh we were just playing a game you know, or it's like, that's yeah. a thing that my brother and I do. That's our, that's our ritual. That's our little code. Uh, and the monster who is often copying human behavior, mm. you know, sometimes uses violence as a tool to communicate or to protect, you know, like the monster is often causing harm 
by trying to do something that she believes is helping Lucas, you know? So like all that stuff is like mixed together in the, in the pot as it yeah. were, but like, and so all the personal stuff and all the fascinating stuff that I love about monster movies were things that I wanted to put into this film. And I think you can, you can really tell, like as a viewer, you can tell that like there, because of like how much like the story really hits you in an emotional way, like you can mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, it feel like it feels human like and i think that's the success of the story and of this film is that it feels genuinely human even with this like the creature the hag like the hulking creature there's still throughout the film this great human quality to it and i think that is as you said it's this little personal touches that are sprinkled throughout it it kind of lends to that but then I think it's also successful in just being like leaning into the fantastical elements of horror films. And I, I, I just, I, I can rave with this film nonstop, like, cause I, I really enjoyed it. And it was, it felt very resonant to me. Cause I think anyone who has experienced any form of bullying in yeah. their lives will like see themselves in the character of Lucas because, and I think, like you said there that like abuse and particularly child abuse is, yeah. it isn't like this black and white thing it's very nuanced and it's there's lots of layers to it and I think your film does a good job of capturing that showing that and thank you no you're very you're very welcome and I love as well that you did throw in the character of Anna the outsider perspective because I think you know that's a that's a really interesting tool to kind of show both sides of it for to the viewer's perspective because like you know the viewer can kind of sympathize with lucas and tom because they're the brothers and they've got this complicated relationship but then if you have the outsider as well that's kind of commenting that this isn't exactly normal <laughs> you know it, yeah. ca it causes the viewer to kind of question it themselves and question how they're receiving it so i thought it was a really successful character to introduce and a tool um, and i just want to know what was it like actually working with and um, because it's something that I always find so fascinating watching horror films that have children like because yeah. I always wonder like you know like these films that deal with such big complex like emotions and complex feelings and like feelings of horror and you've got children like young kids so I'm just yeah. wondering like what were the what were the children that you worked with like specifically the amazing August who plays uh, oh. Lucas and then it was also Mirabel Lee who played Mariah as well they were the two that kind of really stood out for me and what was it like yeah. working with the kids on this film well they were extraordinary I, I love working with children uh, and I love horror films and and dark films that have children in them because I think that ch I, I think that we underestimate the emotional awareness that children have mm -hmm. and the and the deep intelligence that children have I think we often speak down to children yeah. and like you know movies like Phantasm always spoke to me when I was growing up because it had a child protagonist who was dealing with very adult stuff in mm -hmm. that movie where the people under the stairs it's another example um so I cared very deeply about uh, working with kids who were really smart, uh, who really uh, cared about what we were doing, who could, who could resonate with the material, whose parents were engaging with them. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, all that stuff is what I really cared about. And we were very fortunate because August, he was, he was a kid that we all wanted to be in the movie. He, he'd been on a, a very uh, famous TV show 
and he and for horror fans or well yeah some people yeah the the nun is the big horror movie that he was in which like you know i, I have my own feelings about the nun but the thing that made the investors happy was it made gazillions of dollars so like, they were like yes get august but that wasn't really why i wanted august i mean i mm -hmm. want i mean i think he's excellent in the nun but like the thing that really attracted me to him was that he is a, he's a true eccentric and a true original and he's very singular there aren't like a million augusts so there's one of him hmm. so we uh we approached him and we talked about it and, uh, and very quickly i got the sense that he was he reminded me a lot as a as an actor and in playing the character as me when i was his age which at the time mm -hmm. of making of him was 12. Like I, I always thought like I was a 40 year old. I'm in my 40s now, so I feel like I've grown into myself. Uh, <laughs> and uh, August was 12 and, and it felt like talking to an adult. You know, it felt like talking mm. to a very mature, thoughtful person with his own personhood. Uh, and he became a, a total collaborator on the experience. You know, like he, he and I would show up to work every day making this film. And it felt as if his investment was as great as my own. Like he, it was very present for all that he wanted. He wanted to make the movie. He understood the character. He himself mm -hmm. had been dealing with some bullying issues that he wanted to address and confront. Uh, also, um, his mother, it was all into astrology. She was on set with us and she was like, well, I'm a Virgo and you're a Virgo and August is a Virgo and you have an army of Scorpios in the crew. So everything will work out great. Now, I don't follow astrology, but I took it because I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, anything that creates a bit of connection between August and I was a good mm -hmm. thing. Uh, but um, yeah, I miss him. You know, the only times we get to really talk to each other these days is when we're doing interviews together and stuff like that. Right. Because you know? he's in Los Angeles and I'm in New York and we're both very busy people who are working yeah. on movies and all this sort of stuff. So <laughs> when we do get to talk to each other, I'm reminded by how much I care about him and how what, that, that we caught each other at this unique moment in time because he's a couple years older now and his voice mm. is deeper and he's much taller and, you know he's a very different you know he's the same person but like a, a, but yeah a, a more of a grown-up version of that thing like that last piece of childhood that is so powerful mm -hmm. uh, and Mirabelle Lee I'd like I mean I'm happy that you asked about her because I think she's a powerful person and a really like she was her character, she has a lot to deal with in this story, which is uh, essentially she's playing a character who's having an affair with somebody else and keeping it a secret. You know, it's yeah. like we are, we are having a secret romance and uh, uh, we can't tell anybody, you know, and, and she wants to maintain her social status while at the same time, like mm -hmm. nurturing this young love between yeah. her and her friend, her dear good friend. Uh, and you know the the interesting thing is that for August and Mira, they they were totally equipped to handle all of the complexities of the of the roles. Like they weren't afraid. They were they weren't afraid of being disliked as people. They weren't afraid yeah. of being, you know, of, of showing the the more dark sides of being a human being. The stuff that was very hard for them was kissing each other. <laughs> you know, they had a couple of scenes where they had to kiss. So the first time they did it, like August and Mira insisted that the parents not be on the set and, mm -hmm. and as few crew as possible and everything. And they were and they were so nervous, they were practically trembling. So I went to the director of photography, Dominic Civilli. He and I have been deep good friends for like over 12 years. We've made so many films together. And I said, Dom, mm -hmm. the kids are really nervous. What you and I are gonna do is you and I are gonna walk in front of the camera. We're gonna stand on the marks they have to hit and we're gonna kiss each other in front of them. 
so that they know that it is okay to kiss your friend. So Dom mm-hmm. and I did that, and they thought it was very funny, and they laughed, and then they were like, okay, we can do this. We can kiss our friends. You know, it was totally fine. So then they did it. They said, do you have to do it more than once? I was like, you have to do it at least twice. You know, it's like, what if there's something wrong with that clip? You know, it's like, we have to do mm-hmm. it you know, more than one time, two times. Uh, so they, you know, like once they knew it was okay, then, and that no harm was going to come to them and no one was going to laugh at them and make yeah. fun of them for something that is like, you know, a very sensitive thing to do for someone who's 12. They were both 12 at the time. Uh, yeah. You know, once, once they felt safe doing that, then everything was great. And I should add that safety is extremely important to me on the set. I, I mm-hmm. like making films that are emotionally complicated and deeply dark and disturbing and unnerving. But I don't like the set to be disturbing and unnerving. You yeah, know, I like the set to feel creative and I like everyone to feel relaxed. And I like us to feel like we're dance partners who are supporting one another and loving one another. Uh, so when the brothers had to do these scenes of slapping each other, we had a great stunt coordinator named Mac Kerr. Mm. And Mac would do all these things, like show them different ways to seem like they were slapping each other, but they never made contact ever in mm-hmm. the making of the film. But it looks like they're beating the hell out of each other. This is very important because it allowed them to play the feelings of hurting one another without actually hurting one another, which is very important because I believe in an actor's ability to represent all of the the most nuanced, horrible states of being a human being. But in the in the in the doing of the thing, we have to be sensitive and supportive of one another and caring of one another. And that's what allows us to cry and what allows us to be scared and allows us mm-hmm. to be angry in make-believe. Uh, they can access all the deep feelings when they feel safe and relaxed. And I think that's very important for everybody to know when they're making a horror film. I don't think anybody benefits from the actor feeling scared or unsafe of the violence that will occur. You know, they have to understand that they are completely safe. And that is what allows them to engage in the the violence. Yeah, no, like that, like is something that as like a viewer of horror of horror films is something that like I always it always makes me feel better knowing that like you know everyone who was participated in the making of the film like came away from it having had a good experience type thing. So it yeah. always like may oh, okay yeah no that feels that feels good that fills me with <laughs> warm nice feelings. Yeah. But no, that's still that's a, sounds like you because you care so much. And I think that comes through in the performances of the actors in your films. And like, when I say films, because I also, uh, when I was looking at your um, filmography and I saw a previous film was, oh, there's a sapphic lesbian vampire film, Teresa and Allison. Yeah. I'm totally going to watch that. <laughs> and I loved that as well. Like that was just filled my queer heart with joy. And <laughs> so that was also perfect. But again, you can see it through your films that you can tell that, it comes through in the performances, like you said, that if actors feel safe, that they can access those areas. They don't actually have to experience those feelings to capture it. And I, I think yeah. you can tell that. And it's um, really great. And I love those stories that you told about August and Mira Val. Like they, it seems like they were brilliant to work with. And they yeah, are both so spectacular in their unique roles. And like I'm excited as like a viewer to see where both of them go when it comes to acting because they've got so much potential but there's one like one uh, like on those two characters and I love how both of them are so complex and fleshed out like every character in this film feels like a person like Mm. and that's what I love like you know because sometimes you can watch a film and a lot of characters 
you know, are almost like background material. They don't feel that fleshed out, but every character in this feels like a human in this tapestry. And I love that. But I want to know, like, specifically with um, Lucas and Mariah, there are two characters. The specific scene, and spoiler again, if you haven't watched it, but the specific scene where they have their interaction and unfortunately Mariah ends up getting attacked like by the witch by the hag I want to know like um how was like that type of scene how was it doing that scene because these characters like are so close to each other like I just want to know like that specific type of scene what was that one like to film because you can tell there was so much raw emotion in it it was extremely intense uh I you know, you just want to create the space around actors to feel the feelings. And uh, that was one of the, the few times, I mean, August was so emotionally available. Like he's, he's, very, he's very able to access rage and fear mm-hmm. and trauma and pain. He is not traumatized, but he has a tremendous emotional availability. But when we shot that scene, it was one of the moments in the movie where he asked, he's like, can I have uh, a minute or two? When he sat on a rock and like, thought, you know, he did some sense memory work and he thought a little bit about what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And and then he kind of came over and nodded his head and we were like, roll camera, let's go. Uh, and he brought all, like, he just dug into his being uh, and allowed all that stuff to come out. And what was very interesting for the other actor, Lucas Hassel, who played the witch, mm-hmm. uh, Lucas' response to that was like, he's like, well, if, if August playing Lucas is going to come at me with such passion yeah. uh, and, and such like s- such fear. And so, and with the tears, like Lucas Hassel was like, well, I'm just going to do nothing. I'm going to shut off. Mm. I'm going to flip off like a switch. I'm just going to stand there and be unknowable. Uh, mm. And, uh, and it gave August such a powerful thing to fight against because like when you are trying to, actively engage with something that has hurt you mm. and that thing is giving you nothing in return you know it's terrifying it <laughs> creates a feeling like that you're running up against a wall mm-hmm. uh, and it was very it was fascinating it's like it was all all credit to wonderful imaginative actors like doing those scenes and mira for that like it was for her like i think that she had i think she felt like she had the easiest job in that sequence which was that she because I think she was very excited that day. She's like, ah, I'm, I'm doing, I'm really in a horror movie now because I'm like looking for my friend and calling his name. And she had a very clear intention to play, which was to make it okay, to make it better. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. You know, it's like, I want to rekindle our affair. You know, I want, I yeah. want us to start over again. I, I'm, I feel terrible about what happened because she has a conscience and because she cares deeply. Uh, and then she gets to turn and face the unknowable and I think Mira was really excited by that. She was like, oh my God, I get to do this stunt and I get to do this thing and I get to have a scene with this monster. And, you know, it's like, I mean, I've always wanted to do a horror film and now here we are, you know? So so while August is like going through this like Marlon Brando, like deep seated thing and Lucas Hassel is going through a whole artistic choice, Mira's like, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited about like doing this scene. Like the scenes that were harder for her were the scenes where she felt like Mariah was being manipulative, you know, mm. and like that she had to, and because August was her friend at a certain point. So when she has to spit on August, 
Like yeah. that is much harder for her to do. Like, and she, you know, of course, you know, we did it in such a way that she didn't have to spit on it, but just the idea yeah. of doing it. And like, even if you're spitting at him and he's like, not, you know, he's several feet away from her when she does it, but like doing that Ew. to your friend who in the movie is a character that you care about, but you don't want your friends to think that like, that is work that, you know, that, you know, like Mira felt all of the painful feelings attached to mm. that of like, uh, of like, oh my God, I am really, I, I feel guilty because I'm being an asshole here and mm. there's nothing, I, I feel like there's nothing I can do about it. So like her moment of like her crucible really was like a scene like that, which of course she was extremely prepared for and ready to play. Uh, yeah. And August felt terrible. I mean, August is so emotionally ill. He's like, I can't believe that you did that to me. You know, it's like, how could you do that? You know? And they still hang out. They, they, you know, August and Mira are very good friends and like they nice. all hang out with each other. And, you know, the, and Bianca and Chiara who play the bullies are their mm. friends as well, which of course is the irony of like these people who are abusing August are like, uh, are his friends. And Mira is a twin herself. So right. all these connections between each other that allowed them to be friends. You know, Mira and August went to um, uh, Manchester together for Grimfest to see Slapface when it yeah. played there. Uh, none of us could make it to Freyfest, which I was really bummed out about because mm. uh, they played it on a big IMAX screen. I would have liked to have met. There are several reviewers and podcasters yeah. whose work I really enjoy and embrace that attend Freyfest I would have liked to have met. So maybe next time, you know, we're in post on another movie called Boo Hag. And uh, nice. I certainly, my hope is to be able to go to Frightfest and to Manchester and uh, uh, and maybe some of the other places that we have horror fests. And I, because I love the United Kingdom and would like to go back. I mean, even with all the, <laughs> the nuanced <laughs> complexities of the United Kingdom, because there are some things that are very fucked up about, uh, about that. And america as well and my dad yeah too. but definitely uh, but they do yeah. great horror film festivals so yeah that would be it's a pity that you didn't get to make the last one but it'd be great to, for a feature film to be able to have you out there that'd be that'd be really cool um but actually just when you mentioned there i'm glad that you mentioned him as well because i like lucas hassel like um is great as the hag as the witch and like i like as a horror like fan like a viewer i always like again it's the creatures it's those type of performances which i just love because like as an actor when your face which is usually like your biggest source of emotion of being able to for someone to know how you're being expressive for that to be concealed and not available those acting performances as the creatures are always so fascinating and it's why you know whether it's doug jones or you know Javier Bottlem there's some of them that are so infamous because they just embody these characters and I just love yeah. this hustle and I want to know like what was it like for for him in this role and what was it like working with him on the film itself well of all of the people I worked with on this movie the person who's been involved with this project the longest is Lucas Hassel uh, right. he's an actor that I've directed many many times we're just really great friends and great collaborators uh and I, I did many screenplay readings of the feature, you know, in, in, you know, over the years of developing the project. And I would, mm. I always believe that you have to cast the best actor to read the screen directions, which is the most thankless role. But I immediately got Lucas Hassel and I was like, Lucas, you have to read the screen directions because you're the storyteller and you have to make the monster very real for everybody who is listening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so one, a couple, you know, we did that a couple of times and Lucas said to me, if you ever, uh, if you ever make this into a film, I'd love a crack at playing her. I'd love, I'd love to play the monster. 
right. and uh, it's because Lucas, you know, at the time, I mean, he's like a six foot six, like Danish, beautiful looking guy. Like he's extremely handsome. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, he was really getting tired of playing roles based on his physical appearance when in fact, mm-hmm. I think that he, he deals with a lot of the, you know, these, these really, I mean, like, uh, like, um, he has a lot of like complex feelings that boil up underneath and he wants to put on a mask to tell you the truth, mm-hmm. you know, to use the Oscar Wilde quote. Uh, and also, you know, Lucas is a queer actor and like is very interested in representing like the, the, the aspects of queerness that audiences like yourself respond to in mm-hmm. that kind of a monster. You know, that's something that Lucas Hassel felt very present about and wanted to do and wanted to accomplish in the work. Uh, so, um, so for me, it was a no brainer. I wanted to cast Lucas Hassel in the movie and, you know, my, you know, my prerequisite to the producers was we have to use Lucas as the monster and Dominic Civilli as the director of photography there, mm-hmm. people I've worked with for years and years. Uh, now when Lucas played the monster in this movie, the thing that was very hard for him was, I mean, obviously like when you're covered in makeup, I mean, people don't see you your face and your, you know, rubs up against your skin. There's, you have to have hours of application that goes into this. Um, But the thing that's very strange is that when you show up on set and you look like a monster, you do not look like a human. And the crew, all of whom, many of whom have worked with Lucas Hassel before and are his friends, you know, did not treat him like Lucas. They they treated him like a, almost like a social pariah. Lucas felt like, uh, like, except with August and with me, he felt almost like a prop. You know, like, nice. right, bring in the monster. You know, we couldn't even mm. use his name because it was too confusing because the character's name is Lucas. You know, oh, right. yes. so it was like, we can't call you Lucas Hassel because uh, people will think we're talking about the character. So I'm just going to call you Monster from now on. <laughs> and uh, and it felt very dehumanizing for Lucas. You know, he was like, man, mm. nobody can see me. Everybody thinks that I'm weird because of the way that I look. And of mm. course, being an actor, he's using all of that. He's using all the feelings of being alone and feeling isolated in one's own skin. Uh, and and that was like really challenging and painful for him. And he would often use humor as a way to deflect, like he would speak in silly accents and things like that when we were having lunch and stuff. Uh, one thing I nice. need to give Lucas credit for is one of the shots that's in the trailer and is one of those moments in the movie that people respond to is um, there's a scene in the film where the monster grabs the little boy and like runs with him and we don't know where he's taking them and they get to the top of this hill and see a beautiful sunset mm-hmm. and when we were supposed to shoot that scene it was supposed to be at a different location so we went right. to that location but various problems occurred you know like there's a property dispute all this stuff was happening we went back to this this the set and i was like lucas i'm sorry you're in all this makeup you got to sit around for two hours you know and you know we're going to shoot something else yeah. he was walking around the estate they were shooting at being like there's got to be something we can film, you know, I'm in stupid makeup. I'm stuck in this makeup for hours. It itches. I can't scratch my nose. And he's like, oh, there is a spot that I like to go mm. at the top of this hill uh, when I'm drinking my iced coffee before I go to work to meditate and think and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So he grabs me and the director of photography and set up. So like, can I show you this location? And maybe we can shoot it right there. It's like one minute away from the house. And we go there and it's like, oh, this is perfect. We'll shoot it in 45 minutes when the sun will be perfect. Uh, mm. And and the thing is that Lucas Hassel also directs films. 
So right. I, I know he was doing because he didn't want to be in this makeup sitting around for all you know for all these hours. But like he was able to pick a beautiful location, and so that shot that's in the movie, that's in the trailer, was mm. really kind of Lucas Hassel. And it was a direct result of him not wanting to be in this makeup all day. That's actually brilliant. He's a great, uh, like, I mean, I, I want to make many, many more films with Lucas Hassel, like whether he's wearing makeup or not, you know, it's like he's a powerful actor. Like he played a villain on the blacklist last season and he's, mm -hmm. he does a lot of television and he's a really experienced, wonderful actor. Um, but like him, like the incentive for him to do the role was the fact that you are playing a distorted version of humanity or an other, mm -hmm. like a, an other version of humanity that is, uh, that, that is a fabulous creature. Yeah, no, that's like, I just like, just that story about how he was able to spot the scene just kind of shows how wonderfully collaborative this project was with yeah. him and the other cast. Like, it feels like it was such a collaboration, which is kind of mm -hmm. like what you want from making a film is like, you know, it to be a collaborative, like all the different creative people come together and what's born is born out of their collaborative efforts. And I think you can really tell that in this beautiful film. And there's one, um, <laughs> like it's something that I wrote in my blog piece, but again, with the, with the creature, mm -hmm. I was like, I love, I wanted to like pick your brain on the like the police uh, uh, station scene where you know Lucas is you know like in the police station like he's being interrogated, questioned, and then essentially he blacks out. And when he comes to, the creature has obviously you know, instilled justice <laughs> on the police station, and yeah. everyone is decimated. And like yeah. I just want to know like what was the kind of like particularly like, maybe like the motivation or the meaning behind that scene because i think there's so many different ways to read it and i love that it's ambiguous and I, that's what i genuinely do love about it that it isn't like a concrete this is what happened it is ambiguous and it, it lends into the fantasy of horror and like i think that touches yeah. in that you said that you love the grim fairy tales and stuff like that i think you can tell that in this type of scene but i want to know like making it what for yourself was kind of the motivation with that type of scene well i felt very committed to showing the, the the power that this monster could have, and mm -hmm. like uh, and showing the the level. I mean, we've already like killed off like major characters in our story, so the audience has already understood that like we're willing mm -hmm. to like wipe out important characters like earlier than they might think we would. Um, but I also wanted to do that to a physical space. Like I wanted, like they, I mean, they'd already mm -hmm. touched the house earlier, but I wanted an authority figure's space to be hurt and crippled by yes. the, the rage of the, this entity. Yeah. Uh, so I felt extremely uh, strong about that. Now the ambiguity of the, the film is something that I find enjoyable. For me, it gets into stuff like, I always like to say on Sesame Street that nobody believed Big Bird when he had his friend Mr. Snuffleupagus, and the kids in the audience could see Big could see Mr. Snuffleupagus, but the adults couldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always felt such indignation at this watching Sesame Street. I was like, man, this is extremely unfair, you know. And uh, um, and yet the ambiguity of horror films is something that delights me. Like when I watched Candyman, nineteen ninety two, mm -hmm. uh, one of the joys of watching that movie is like is Candyman preying on Helen, or is she completely cracking up and having a as, having a total meltdown mm -hmm. based on the stuff, all the crazy stuff that is happening in her life. 
And the movie answers that question at a certain point. It says, oh, no, this is what's happening. Yeah. But I, I could feel the director, Bernard Rose, being a little resistant to that. You know, <laughs> I could feel him being like, hmm, I guess we have to do this now. And I was like, and I, I love that film. I think it's a classic. Yeah. But uh, uh, I was like, I, I kind of want to hold on to it as long as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I mean, you know, it's like I would, sometimes I'm facetiously say, well, we'll happily answer some of those questions and it's not phase two. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but I think it's also important to know what the truth of the story is. Like uh, what, another thing I don't like in minimalist horror is if I get the feeling that the writer or director don't know the answer to the thing that they are leaving out, mm -hmm. then I feel betrayed as a viewer, and I feel like uh, I'm like, well, do they know the story that they are telling? I mean, do they know the pieces of information that they are leaving out, or are they being deliberately, you know, like, yeah, uh, or, or, you know, are they playing a mean trick on me? instead of a delightful trick on me. Like, uh, like I love the complex ending of John Carpenter's The Thing, where you, where the, where the place that it engages in a dance with the audience of like, mm -hmm. is one of them the thing? Are we gonna find out, you know, what are, what, what's gonna happen next? And, I, and I, I'm very satisfied by the ending of that movie. Um, I know John Carpenter says that's the, the reason for the box office failure of The Thing, is that <laughs> audiences detest ambiguity. But I'm an audience member and I love it, you know, and I love when films are willing to uh, take us on that journey, mm -hmm. like Robert Eggers and The Witch and uh, Jennifer Kent with The Babadook. Like these are films, I think there's a wider acceptance now of yeah. like, allowing yourself as a viewer to engage with a movie and like give yourself the sense of wonder of like, is the family and the witch going crazy or is there a witch that is inflicting herself upon them? Mm -hmm. um, and in the Babadook, you know, it's like, how much is it this mother who is undergoing such extreme stress? Uh, and I love both of those films. I mean, both those yeah. films, like, you know, like, I think it's films like those that enabled Slapface to exist because I've been trying to make this film for years and years. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the passion project of my life. You know, it's like there, there, there's a handful of scripts in the trunk that I've been trying to get made. And Slapface was the one that I would always bring out first and say, like, right. this is the one. But for years, you know, before the Babadook came out and before the witch came out, people were like, what does the monster look like? Is it like Shrek? And I'm like, no, no. It's like there's this long one-page description. You know, I've got I've got like, you know, key art that shows you what the monster <laughs> looks like. And they're like, I don't know, what is the monster? You know, it's like uh, yeah. I'm enormously grateful to um the, the these films that like uh that came out that allowed, I mean, I hate the term elevated horror, but I love the fact that films like this exist for an audience and allow them to engage with it in yes. that way. Uh, and I think that we, I'm very happy to live in a world where we can have like the kids pull up in the Winnebago to the cabin and get killed off one by one. I mean, I love those movies, you know, yeah. but I also want to have a balanced diet of movies that, ha that have like the, uh, that the, the show you the beauty of the soulful side or like show you, like engage with the, the intricacies of the strangeness, you know, and that's why I'm very happy. Like, you know, I, I know that once Hereditary had come out, like the producers for Slap Face were like, we want something like that, which is a hmm. dysfunctional family drama that has monsters or horror in it. And I was right. like, well, I have something that fits the bill and here's Slap Face. And they were like, yes, that's what we want to do. Um, so when I look at the past 10 years of horror films that like paved a road for Slap Face to exist, I'm enormously grateful. And I think those films exist in ambiguity uh mm -hmm. and as i said like i also think that robert eggers knows what the underpinnings of the witch are and i fully believe that jennifer kent 
but yes. knew very, she constructed the Babadook very carefully, you know, and, and I wildly embraced those. And then movies that came out after Stat Face, like St. Maud and His House are movies that I yeah. loved. And I was like, if I'd seen these movies before Stat Face, they would have influenced Slap Face because uh, I was so inspired by them and retroactively said that, um, you know, these filmmakers were, um, Remy Weeks and uh, Rose Glass were, yeah. were drinking from the same pool and interested in things that I'm interested in and wanted to tell a story in a, in a way that allowed for viewer complexity to exist. Definitely. And I think that is one of my, like, it's just that, that final finishing scene of Slapface as well. Like, it's, that's gonna, it, it, it's just so powerful. And I think it's just that, like, allows you to kind of embrace that ambiguity is in you mm. can just, like, the panning in of, like, the tear coming from Lucas's face as, like, obviously he's kind of reconciling with everything that has happened. And it's like, you know, it is that ambiguity of, like, was the entity ever real or was it just, yeah. you know, was it, was it, Lucas somehow you don't know and it, yeah. you don't need to know either and I think at the end of the day regardless of which is the reality yeah. Lucas has gone through all of this and he's experienced right. all of this and I think that's as you said you you had the story that you were telling throughout and I think it's you can tell that you can tell that and it's successful on the film as a whole and like, yeah I just I just I think uh, as a theme bullying is one that's so powerful to mm. examine like bullying and abuse are um are themes that are unfortunately something so many people can relate to so it makes mm. a very powerful story um for people to latch onto and i think it's done expertly in this film and i love that you touched on the like the previous 10 years of horror like paved the road for slapface to exist and i think it's very true like i'm loving that yes we are getting you know the kind of typical kind of slasher style films but then we're also getting these type of horror films that go a different direction and you know lean into human stories in and it's more about kind of the horrors of humanity really rather than yeah. these specific monsters but I know I love actually your film has a monster that is also representative of the horrors yeah. of humanity so it both has a monster but is also more um, but I, yeah it's just I think it's a spectacular film and I'm so happy that the 10 years of horror have allowed it to exist and just hearing you talk about how it was your passion project from like as a as a fan I'm happy that you got to experience that and have your passion project come into existence. And I think to wrap up, because I think we've done a good analysis of this wonderful film, and I urge everyone to go watch this film because it's a staple, I think, now of horror. Um, but what I want to know as a director, what you think um, like the future of horror is going to look like? Because there's something that always bugs me is like, you know, that whole like line of like, oh, there's no... Uh, new horror being made it's just like well you're just not looking in the right direct places because slap face is a new horror and it's spectacular but i want to know as a director what you think the future of horror is going to look like over the next say, 10 years well i'm very excited because i love the thing i love about the genre is that it is always changing mm -hmm. so you know i mean even growing up with my grandfather he would talk about like living through the great depression and loving frankenstein dracula the wolfman king kong you know, mm -hmm. those stories said something to him in the times that he was living. And then, of course, you move to the 1950s and everybody's afraid of 
nuclear war and Godzilla emerges mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, and then, uh, you know, the, the 70s lead to like great films from David Cronenberg and George Romero and the 80s lead to the slasher boom and you yeah. know, so this stuff in the 90s were postmodern and now we're in this new era that, you know, I mean, and and it's gonna change into something else, even different. You know, mm-hmm. it's gonna it's gonna become it's gonna keep reflecting back who we are. Uh, yeah. And I'm extremely excited to see new voices emerge because uh, a lot of the the horror filmmakers that that we love from the past, you know, it's like it's the the like like every industry it is dominated by cis white guys. You know, yeah, and I really am excited by queer voices that are emerging and uh, minority voices that are emerging and women mm-hmm. making films and and you know every anything that allows everybody's voice to be expressed raises all of us up because yeah. like all of us get to have the full realm of human experience, you know, which we've been you know which we've been sadly denied. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the more we can go in that direction, the more the more that horror films lean into uh, the the stories that we have not told yet, you know, because those are stories that have been with us for all time, you know, and have yeah. been you know and like uh, and 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 can be and should be represented. And I'm curious to see if the next wave of horror is that because we've been in a pandemic and we've been all cooped up and we've mm-hmm. been bottled up. And now that like the now that it's loosening, will there be, uh, will we have the Roaring Twenties now, where everybody wants to loudly proclaim their story, you know? And like I'm yeah. curious the effect that that will have on the horror genre because that's something I'd be passionate to receive as a viewer and listen to. Definitely, and <laughs> I mean, there's like so many great sound bites in what you just said there. I'm just like this is just blowing my mind. I'm loving it. And um, but yeah, no, I think like myself is a case an example of like how I've heard the pandemic being referred to as the transdemic because the amount of people that went into the pandemic cis and have come out not cis and I'm a case in point of that so I definitely think will be really interesting to see how horror will reflect that like and as how people change and embrace who they are seeing Mm -hmm. those voices hopefully getting told on screen in films in the small screen and stage and theater just all the different ways like creativity mm-hmm. capturing way that people embracing themselves so i definitely yeah. am hopeful and excited to see where things go and like i guess on the more you know bleaker side unfortunately in the uk and the us at the moment there's a lot of kind of backlash against queer people being more present yeah. So I'd yeah. say the horror genre might be a great vehicle to kind of represent that. So it's interesting to see where things go. But before I close out, I just want to thank you again for speaking to me and discussing your wonderful film. I'm just in awe of being able to have this conversation. But where can, pe- <laughs> where can people find you if they want to follow your work and see what else is coming down the road from you? Well, I'm extremely active on social media. So, and I also have a very easily identifiable name. So I'm very easily, easy to Google, but also mm-hmm. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. 
I, uh, I really, I really should be good on Twitter, but I, uh, Donald Trump was so popular on Twitter that I kind of feel resistant to it. Uh, mm. e even though, you know, it's like, it'd be a way to access a lot of people who care about slap face. Uh, uh, so Jeremiah Kip on Instagram and Facebook, uh, and then on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, uh, slap face has a pretty public, uh, we, like we always keep updating those pages. Yeah. So I think it's slap face film on Instagram and Twitter and slap face. I think it's called the slap face of the feature on mm. uh, on Facebook, mainly because there was a slap face page for the short that is, you know, like that is kind of archival now. Uh, but yeah, social media is probably the easiest access point for me uh, because I think it's a useful tool to uh, to get the word out to like a lot of people and to and to create a dialogue with people who have seen the film, not just in America but all over the world. Hi there. Thank you for listening. That was my episode with the fantastic director Jeremiah Kipp, where we sat down to discuss his latest film Slapface and just horror in general. It was a fantastic discussion. So I really want to thank Jeremiah for sitting down with me and thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please go and watch the movie Slapface. It is well worth the investment of your time. And keep your eyes and ears peeled for future episodes of the podcast. Thanks again. This is your host, Mix Bell Morgan.